Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We really have a great chat room, and, uh, you know, I, I, I want to encourage every single one of you to get on over to that chat room. Some of the dialogue that goes on in there, I read it every week after the show, and, uh, you know, it's, well, tell us about it, Ravinder. Sometimes we have some really good dialogue. We actually get deeply into subjects. That's sometimes, you know. There are other times it's light and it's playful and we have a, a laugh. But we do take the subject matter seriously. And uh, sometimes people bring some very different ideas to it. But we can hammer them out. And that's how you learn and grow. So you have to be open well, to it. You know, I looked at last week's. And, of course, we had Professor Singer on the show. Mm-hmm. And we were discussing ethics and a very important subject in this day and age. I mean, I don't know what area of our lives it doesn't bear upon. And it was a very rich dialogue with some really interesting ideas. It was indeed. And I totally agree with you. The whole subject of ethics, I think it should be something that is taught in all schools. Uh, but sadly, today, the education system isn't about teaching people how to think. But in our chat room, we think. We think, we communicate, we share ideas, we have some fun, and we make some really good friends. So. All right. So if you're not in that chat room, get on over there if you can. Provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to discuss trust, specifically in our government. Last week, I spent two hours with George Nury on Coast to Coast AM discussing Vault 7 WikiLeaks release of some of the things in the CIA's hacking toolbox. And I just got back from Boulder, Colorado, where I did a one-hour interview, television interview, on precisely this sort of thing. In my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, I covered many of the tools available to our intelligence agencies. I also spent thousands of words sharing some of the very many atrocious studies that have been carried out on innocent American citizens in the name of security. There are well-known abuses, such as the work conducted under the guise of MKUltra and many lesser-known ones. In one instance, by way of example, fog was used to test the distribution of airborne viral agents in San Francisco, and this led to the death of at least one man. When his family learned of this ensued, the court ruled that the government could not be sued for this action. I don't want to belabor the point, but the fact is our so-called clandestine agencies have often conducted themselves in less than moral ways and done so at the expense of innocent Americans. We have all been enculturated in ways that have fed the idea of national pride and ethnocentrism. As such, we tend to trust much more than we sometimes should. The technology available today can do much more than turn your TV set into something that watches you and or your cell phone into a tracking and eavesdropping device, such as was disclosed in the Vault 7 Info. It can take over the operation of your automobile, seize control of your computer, and much, much more. Now, never forget that we actually help the spies invade our privacy. We openly share too much info on social networking sites. We fill in questionnaires defining our personality characteristics. We buy devices such as Amazon's Echo and so forth. It is our responsibility to protect our information in an age where it is our information that is used to manipulate us. So what do we trust today? Many experts are insisting that although the CIA has these devices, 
it never uses them on U.S. citizens. And I'll tell you, if the CIA has these, the NSA has many, many more. But then how long ago was it that we had officials from both the CIA and NSA testify to Congress that they never spied or used these devices on Americans? Oh, wait for it. Then came Snowden. And today, Vault 7. In today's world, I think it's only good sense to check what you hear in the news before trusting it. And when it comes to trusting government, I'm reminded of something Ronald Reagan said. Trust, but verify. For to follow along blindly accepting the current storyline, whatever that may be, will invariably lead, as Edward R. Murrow put it, to a nation of sheep that will beget a government of wolves. My thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? There's too much truth in what you're saying, you know. Um, I was going to say, you know, we, we are in very interesting times right now because all of these issues, well, you didn't have um, 20, 30 years ago. You know, you tend to think of it as being related to the information age. But then the more you, that you read, you know, the stuff like MK Ultra and stuff, well, that was longer ago than that. It's just there is this absolute power absolutely corrupts. And there is just that's where the truth is. And the more that the powers that be, the more access they have to information, the more they're going to use it against us. And so it's just accelerating. Well, and, and you know, we, we sometimes say, oh, well, what difference does it make? You know, it doesn't matter if they, you know, Da 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 da. But then we see election results, and we wonder how did that happen. And then we learn about Cambridge Analytics using psychographics, something mm -hmm. we've discussed on this show, and they got the very information necessary to. I don't want to say manipulate, but to move the masses in a direction, uh, an outcome that they decided was their wanted outcome from our willingness to give them that information. Yeah, yeah no, it does. It, it, the problem just gets bigger and bigger. Okay, every week I read some of your letters. Is our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful? Last week our show featured Professor Peter Skinner, and we discussed his book, Ethics in the Real World. I hope you went out and got the book. If you didn't, by the time this show's over, I'm sure you will. Thomas wrote, loved your show with Peter Skinner. The animal rights issue is a big deal with me, and Skinner's work has made it better for millions of animals around the world. Chase wrote, I found his statements about the objective truth of ethics pertaining to animal rights and capital punishment to be sound and certainly worthy of respect. I would like to hear him come on and answer the questions you didn't get to in the last show. Uh, well, you know... <clears throat> Here, wishes our horses. Professor Singer will be joining us again today. And uh, we've moved things around so we can have a part two. CB remarked, weighty topics on this show, like to guess, very confident, and did not shirk away from difficult questions. Moving on, Jenny wrote, love, love, love your work. Supporting your company is money well spent. Thank you. And Edwin wrote, I am living proof of the benefits of your products. I have a series I purchased over the last 10 years. And they have had remarkable impact on my life. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, part two of Ethics in the Real World with Professor Peter Singer. Last week, there were so many subjects that we simply did not have time for that we asked Professor Singer to return this week for a part two segment, and he graciously accepted. So if you missed last week's show, let me first tell you a little bit about our guest. Peter Singer has been described as the world's most influential living philosopher. His book, Animal Liberation, is credited with having triggered the animal rights movement, while his work on global poverty has played an important role in promoting effective altruism, which encourages more effective giving to help people in extreme poverty. He is the founder of The Life You Can Save, an organization that encourages effective giving. 
He is professor of bioethics at Princeton University and now spends part of each year at the University of Melbourne in Australia, where he is laureate professor. His most recent book, Ethics in the Real World, a collection of short popular essays, is the subject of today's show. And again, I hope you get this book. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Peter Singer. Thank you, Elton. It's good to have another chance to chat. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. You know, as you know, we did. There were so many subjects that we just didn't get to. And your book is such a complete compendium on, on the issues that we face in so many different areas that I, I felt it was really important that we did bring you right back. And I'm very glad that you were willing to, you know, adjust your schedule, get up at the wee hours of the morning in Australia in order to join us, sir. Right. That's fine. Yes, it is. It is early because you change your clock, so it's, uh, it's an hour earlier here. But uh, <laughs> that's fine. I'm awake and I'm happy to talk to you and your listeners. All right. Well, today I would like to address a series of the so-called ethical hotbeds presently at issue in our culture. So let's begin by addressing something we probably should have covered last week, should have began with. And that's, you know, schools today rarely require ethics courses if they offer them at all. So why is it important for people today to become more aware of an ethical lifestyle? Well, I think that uh, our society very often makes the assumption that people are simply going to look after their own interests. And that's something that we ought to reflect on, at least. You know, and I think schools ought to play a role in this. Uh, we have choices about what goals we're going to set. We don't just have to go on in any particular pattern. And uh, there's so much information coming to us from, from the media uh, that suggests that getting more money, consuming more, having the latest gadgets is what's really important. Uh, I think we need to look at uh, other approaches, and there are many other approaches in different cultures and throughout our own history, that says, look, what will really give you a fulfilling and meaningful life is to make a difference to the world, to think about how you can improve the world, what you can contribute to making the world a better place, not just for yourself, but for everyone who's affected by your actions. And uh, so I'd like to see more discussion of that uh, in You know, I, I, I have argued in many instances that uh, consumerism, that, that the neuromarketers, uh, the champions who want to sell us something, they, they do two things. The first one is every time we see an ad, they tell us we're deficient in some way or another because if we're not deficient, we don't need the product. And the second one is they tell us that self-esteem is all about what we can consume, what we can own, we, that automobile that we can drive and pose in, that home that we can have, those clothes, uh, and, and so on and so forth. When self-esteem, in my view, comes from what you do for others, I mean, that's when you know your life matters because your ability to help someone else, you know, we're hardwired in such a way that our brain rewards us. We, we see fMRI reward centers in the brain light up, but we just simply sign a check for a charity we really care about. Uh, how do you get that message across to people, Professor Skinner? Well, you're absolutely Senior. right. I mean, there is uh, there's good psychological research showing that uh, people who are generous enjoy their lives more, have more satisfaction. Um, people who spend money on others or do things for others uh, enjoy their time more, feel better about themselves. Uh, and, of course, just, just having your values in line with your actions and the, the way you live is also important. So uh, I'm certainly trying to get this message across, and, and uh, I'm you know, talking to people about this as much as I can. You're doing that. I think there are a number of people out there in the community who are trying to spread this message, but, of course, we don't have the billions of dollars to spend on uh, advertising that the manufacturers of consumer products do. So it's always an uphill battle, even though I think the evidence is clearly on our side. Uh, it's an uphill battle to get that message out there. All right, let's do this. Let's assume that, you know, our listeners, everybody out there wants to live an ethical life. and They want true self-esteem. Um, what would that involve? What, what does an ethical life involve? 
Well, the uh, older conception of living an ethical life was essentially to obey certain moral rules, which uh, mostly begin with thou shalt not, and uh, to say that you know, there are certain bad things that you ought not to be doing. And you know, obviously that's, that's generally true. But I don't think it's enough anymore. Uh, it's not enough anymore because we live in a different world from the one uh, that our ancestors lived in, and we have the opportunity to uh, make a difference to people on the other side of the world now, and those people might be far worse off, not only than we are, but far worse off than anyone living in our community is. And so I think that uh, to live an ethical life involves trying to improve the world as a whole, trying to make the world a better place, and that's going to involve helping people in greater need. And, and the good news is that we can do that now, and we can do it with a high degree of confidence uh, that there are organizations, as long as we do some research to find out which organizations, there are organizations out there which will be very efficient uh, in taking whatever we can spare to them and using it to make the biggest possible improvement in the lives of people in extreme poverty. We, one of the things that we hear a lot about uh, today is the idea that uh, we should all share. Uh, sharing is good. Uh, and, you know, we, we can see some division. There are folks that think, you know, sharing begins at home and we don't share anywhere else. Um, and, they, and they argue that America has gained its strength, its power, its leadership in the world, and its ability to intervene in situations that have made the world a better place. Not that, you know, that we've always done that in the correct way, uh, or you know, for that matter, not that we have done it with the best intentions always. But if we were to level the playing field and redistribute wealth, from America to all those nations in need, well, then this nation would no longer have that role. We would live in poverty. How do we find the balance? It, you must have some, you know, formula for what we we can expect would be, you know, a proper way to share and at the same time be able to retain a lifestyle that we have come to know in America that gives this country the strength that, it defines a country. Uh, well, I haven't been talking about um, producing a level playing field. I haven't mentioned the word equality. Uh, what I've been talking about is, is people in great need and in extreme poverty uh, as compared with the way that Americans live. And we Americans live in uh, a high level of affluence and, uh, and abundance. Uh, I don't think equality is a realistic goal to aim for. Um, and I don't even think that it is an intrinsic moral value if we're talking about economic equality, political equality, and equality of status certainly is. But if we're talking about economic equality, um, you know, I mean, different people can make different choices, and I don't think that everybody ought to have the same amount of money or anything like that. Uh, but uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I'm not talking about anything that would reduce America to, to poverty. Um, the fact is that America gives... Uh, extraordinarily little in foreign aid uh, to um, the poorest countries, um, both in terms of government aid it, as a percentage of America's gross national income. It's way down towards the bottom of uh, the affluent nations, is much less than uh, most other nations in the world as a, as a percentage of income. And uh, in terms of the private contributions Americans make, they also give overwhelmingly domestically rather than uh, abroad, although they, they do give some significant amounts abroad. Uh, and it, it wouldn't really take a big increase, I think, to have a dramatic impact on global poverty uh, as long as, again, we were giving to effective organizations. Um, uh, you mentioned in the introduction I've, I've set up an organization called The Life You Can Save, uh, and if people go to thelifeyoucansave.org, they'll find uh, recommended organizations that have been thoroughly investigated uh, as being highly effective in terms of making a difference to people, um, in terms of you know, basically getting the, the, the best value out of every dollar that they receive. So uh, it, it wouldn't take very much to be given to those effective organizations, certainly nothing that would have uh, any significant impact on America's
have an enormous impact uh, on uh, the lives of, of people in extreme poverty. Uh, say, as long as it was well used, of course, that's a prerequisite. Right. We, you know, as a nation, tend to give a, a fair amount of money, as you point out, to uh, nations, and often, you know, we're we're subsidizing nations who are at odds with us. Uh, you know, what what is your opinion about um, that kind of thing when we could be instead redirecting that money, not maybe money needed in the military so much, and I don't know if we need it or not, so that's perhaps not the correct terminology, but uh, if we redirected funds that we give to countries where we know that money doesn't actually end up in people's pockets, but it's there for political reasons instead of poverty, it what are your feelings about that? Uh, I do think that uh, USA could be um, better directed. Uh, you know what what the US calls foreign aid has very often been used for political purposes. So, uh, for example, uh, for many years uh, Iraq was the number one recipient of US foreign aid uh, because, of course, uh, we had troops in Iraq and we were trying to stabilize that situation as a counterterrorism measure. Uh, then when the U.S. withdrew its troops from Iraq, uh, Afghanistan became the country that was the number one recipient of U.S. foreign aid. Uh, again, obviously, because of uh, the conflict going on in Afghanistan. Um, these are not the world's poorest countries. Uh, Afghanistan is quite poor, but Iraq was certainly never one of the world's poorest countries. It had uh, significant oil revenues. Um, but countries that are simply poor and that are, are not of that kind of geopolitical interest to the United States uh, are not uh, receiving anything like the, the same kind of sums of, of aid. And uh, as you say, um, some of it has been disappearing into the pockets of dictators, not, not so much recently. I think we've got a little bit better at that, but certainly in the past that uh, did happen quite often. Uh, so I think we, we need to continue to direct that aid to people uh, at the bottom uh, and in some of the poorest nations of the world, and then we could make a difference. But I also want to add, uh, you know, Americans do not have to rely on their government to do this. Uh, we have the means to do it ourselves. Uh, most Americans have more than they need. They spend money on things that they, they certainly don't need and often that don't really make any significant difference to their quality of life. And, uh, and we have the ability to donate that effectively ourselves. And as I say, um, at thelifeyoucansave.org, you can find uh, my recommendations and the recommendations of others who've done a lot of research uh, as to which are the best organizations to give that to. You, that brings me back to the formula, and so I'm just going to put the words in your mouth. If I understand you, you basically believe that a tithe would not hurt us if we were to just look at 10% of uh, our income, do you mean that to be 10% of our gross, 10% of our discretionary? How do you derive that? Yeah, um, so what I would say is if you're um, a middle-class American or above middle-class, then you can probably give 10% uh, of your gross income. After all, you can take a tax deduction for it, so in effectively you are reducing your taxable income by making a donation. Um, you can effectively give 10% of your gross income to effective charities. Uh, it's not going to make a significant impact on your quality of life. Uh, and if it does reduce your ability to purchase some consumer goods, you're going to more than make up for that in the feeling of satisfaction that you know you're doing your part to make the world a better place. Now, I should say, you know, that's not going to be true for absolutely everyone before people start saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, I've got to send my kids through college or I've got various dependents on me and I, that I'm supporting. So this is not an absolute rule and people should adjust to their own circumstances and for some people it will be significantly less than that. But, but very many Americans, it's not really a problem to donate 10%. And I concur. We, um, we've got a break coming up in about 30 seconds. When we come back from the break, I want to take on some of the hot issues. I'm going to ask you about euthanasia as a case in point. I mean, should we be able to choose uh, the end of our own life? 
We're speaking with Professor Peter Singer about his book, Ethics in the Real World. I cannot recommend this book any higher. You know, Clifton Fadiman said, God plagued man with the ability to think. Well, either our thinking capacity is a gift and or it is a plague. And if thinking is important to you, then these issues should be important to you. And reading uh, Professor Singer's book will illuminate many of these issues and give you insights that perhaps you haven't had before. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at petersinger.info. All right, we have a video in our chat room with our guest discussing stem cells and cloning. So get on over there if you're not there now. We'll be right back. Thank you. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Peter Singer about his book, Ethics in the Real World. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, petersinger, one word, dot info. Now, Professor Singer, I uh, apologize to you. I, it was just pointed out to me during the break that I referred to you as Professor Skinner in the setup. I have no clue. I mean, I, Maybe your writings remind me of B.F. Skinner. I have no clue why that was the case. But so everybody out there knows 
This is Professor Peter Singer, and the book is Ethics in the Real World, and it is a great read. All right, we ask our guests uh, for their favorite music, and as you know by now, music psychology is a new hobby of mine. So, to that end, Alexandra Leaving by Sharon Robinson is what we just played. Tell us why this piece is important to you, Professor, and how it adds to our understanding of who you are. Right. Firstly, let me say uh, the version I chose was sung by Sharon Robinson, who is the co-writer of the song. The other co-writer is Leonard Cohen, um, and, and the, the, the words were, were written by Leonard Cohen. Uh, I find it fascinating because I, I listened to this many times, and then I discovered uh, in one of the concerts, Cohen says something like, it's a homage to the Greek poet Constantine Cavafy. And I thought, what's that about? And I looked it up. And uh, so there was a poem by Cavafy uh, called The God Abandons Antony. That's Mark Antony, who, of course, is famous uh, from Antony and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he wrote a poem about uh, Antony, uh, Mark Antony, facing defeat when he's in the city of Alexandria, uh, uh, not, uh, sorry, of Alexandria, Alexandria not uh, Alexandra. And uh, so it's a rewritten version of this poem, which itself is based on a writing by Plutarch, the uh, uh, ancient writer who wrote the story of Mark Antony and his defeat. And uh, the gods abandon Antony is about the idea that uh, during the night before the final battle that he faced, there was strange music heard, and uh, it was supposed to be the gods leaving the city and abandoning him. And, uh, you know, I, I invite your readers to look up the poem um, the gods abandon uh, the god the, the god abandons Anthony and compare it with the lyrics of uh, the Cohen Robinson song. I think it's, it's really intriguing what uh, Cohen has done with the lyrics to turn that into a story of, of the loss of love for a woman rather than the loss of a city. Um, but I, I just like the way that sort of history was echoing down through this song from something that was first written about by Plutarch uh, a couple of thousand years ago. Now, that is probably the most erudite explanation of why someone liked a song we have heard on this show in five years. <laughs> you know, I, I got the lyrics and I I got the lyrics and I looked over the lyrics and, you know, I, I thought, OK, we've got a little self-disclosure here. This is all about a love story. You know, his lover's lost. and <laughs> I'm disappointed. What can I say? I'm sorry. No, I, I, it doesn't evoke any particular lost love of, of mine, but it does perhaps evoke my fascination with, with history and uh, including uh, Roman history uh, and to see that coming through in a, a contemporary reasonably popular song uh, I found fascinating. Tells us something more about your intellect, sir. Listen before I jump back into the questions. My dear (laughs) wife, sitting here, is insisting. She has visited your site, and she does not see an animal charity there. She wants to know what animal charity is it that you support. Okay, uh, she's right. The, the Life You Can Save is about global poverty. Uh, it's an organization that was specifically set up to help people to contribute to uh, assisting people in extreme poverty, and that's why it doesn't have any animal charities there. Um, I do, of course, support animal charities. I think that reducing animal suffering is a very important thing to do, uh, but uh, that's not on, on that website for the reason I just gave. I urge people to go to a different website called Animal Charity Evaluators. Uh, And if you go to animalcharityevaluators.org, they rate the most effective animal charities. They're they're doing for animal charities what the life you can save is doing for charities about global poverty. And uh, they are currently recommending, um, uh, I think, three charities as their top charities. One is called Mercy for Animals, a group that is uh, brought about a lot of undercover investigations of cruelty on factory farms and uh, made videos which have got a lot of attention about the way animals are treated on factory farms. Uh, another organization is the Humane League, which uh, has been lobbying corporations to uh, cease to use 
animal products from some of the worst ways of confining and keeping animals, for example, to stop uh, using eggs from hens kept in small wire cages where they can't even stretch their wings. And uh, the third charity is a relatively new one called the Good Food Institute, which is trying to promote uh, the production of new alternatives to meat, um, both for the animals and for the environment. We know that meat is a major contributor to greenhouse gases and climate change. Uh, and the Good Food Institute is trying to encourage venture capitalists to put money into new ways of producing plant-based foods that are uh, tasty, that are nourishing, that are economically competitive with meat, and that do not have the highly negative environmental impact that uh, meat does. So I think all three of those are uh, extremely good charities, and you can read more about them at animalcharityevaluators.org. All right. I was supposed to add, you have 30 seconds to give that answer because she didn't want to steal the show, but I didn't. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's get back to where we were. Um, should we be able to choose uh, how to end our own life, when to end our own life? Are there any limitations, uh, or is this just, I mean, would this be something that would apply only to the terminally ill? I do think we ought to be able to choose when to end our own life. I think that that is primarily our own decision. Um, that applies to competent adults, in my opinion. Um, that is, people who are you know, clearly mentally competent to make that decision. And uh, I think that it's advisable to have some checks on that, that they are making a sensible decision, that they've thought about it, that it's not a sudden decision. So I think the kinds of uh, requirements that exist in places where that has been legalized um, are reasonable. California is obviously uh, one example of that. Um, going back further, we had uh, Oregon, the state of Washington, uh, and just more recently, Washington, D.C. as well. Um, and, of course, the whole of Canada has now legalized uh, physician assistance in dying, as well as a number of European countries. Uh, and generally, they do require that you be either terminally or incurably ill. Uh, I, think, I don't think you need to be terminally ill, in my judgment, for this to be a reasonable decision to make. Um, terminally ill is usually defined as uh, expected to die within six months. But you could be suffering from a condition that you find intolerable, and uh, even though you may live more than six months with that condition, you just don't think it's worth living any longer at all. Uh, and I think, again, that could be a reasonable decision to make. But I do think you need to state this uh, in writing, that there needs to be a kind of cooling-off period, and you need to restate it uh, maybe a week or ten days later. Uh, you need to have a second doctor examine you and say that the condition is uh, terminal or incurable uh, and that you are competent of a sound mind when making this decision and providing those constraints are complied with um, I can't see why a doctor should not be able to assist you in carrying out that decision What about a cancer patient whose odds are you know very minimal 10-20% um, that they can be cured, but their treatment is going to take uh, months, even years, uh, and um, it's going to cost, it's going to break the family. And so the let's assume it's the father, and the father says, you know, I'm just not going to do this. I, I'll, I'll leave my family in poverty, and the odds that I'm going to be cured are slim to none. So, you know, I, I, I want to end my life. What about a situation like that, Professor Singer? Well, the first thing that I would say about uh, a situation like that uh, in the United States is uh, it's a scandal that a country as wealthy as the United States uh, leaves a situation in place where having life-saving treatment could cause a family to end up in poverty. Uh, every other developed industrialized nation in the world provides free health care to its citizens. Uh, where I am now, Australia, for example, obviously does, but uh, really every UK, European country, Canada, uh, they all do. They take that for granted. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's scandalous that uh, the Republicans are winding back the 
partial attempt that uh, Obamacare made to cover its citizens in those circumstances. But, uh, but you know, taking the facts as you state them, uh, again, I think that that's a reasonable decision. I don't think you can force anybody to have uh, treatment they don't want to have, uh, whether it's because they don't want to impoverish their family or simply because the treatment itself is very burdensome. Um, I've known people with cancer who have had uh, chemotherapy and really felt that it made them feel so bad that it just wasn't worth it, that uh, even if it was extending their life, they would rather have a shorter life with good quality of life than have that treatment. So, you know, that's a choice people might make. Not everybody would make the same choice. But uh, I don't see why we should force people to have treatment, which is going to prolong their life. And uh, if they decide not to have that treatment, um, again, and they therefore think that it's the quality of life has fallen to a point where they can't bear it anymore, uh, I don't see why we should force them to stay alive. Okay, let's take the next hot issue. Let's talk about greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, do we have an ethical uh, requirement in your mind uh, to be more aware of our own footprint in terms of greenhouse gases? I mean, you know, I live in the country, and I've got a 4 by 4 truck and a couple of SUVs. Uh, am I violating an ethical principle by, you know, having these gas guzzlers? I think you are, yes. And, of course, you know, that's only one way in which people are contributing to greenhouse gases through the vehicles they drive. They also contribute through their through their meat consumption, as I've just uh, said earlier, and uh, in uh, through wasteful heating, for example, if they've not properly insulated their home or wasteful air conditioning. Uh, there are many ways in which uh, we in the affluent society are contributing to climate change. And I think that that is ethically wrong because after all we're imposing harms on others i think the evidence is good enough to say that uh, at the very very least we're taking a risk of imposing harm on others and uh, you know clearly if we can avoid the risk of imposing harm on others we shouldn't do it um, if we know that something we're doing might harm others let's say speeding through a, uh, a busy street um, we're not trying to kill anyone but we know that it's unethical to speed through a busy street because there's a risk that we will hit someone. Well, with climate change, the risk is, is longer term and more remote, but uh, it's definitely there. Um, I would say it's a, a very high probability. That's the consensus of expert scientists in the field. But even if you think it's only uh, a risk, you, you know, it's still something we shouldn't do because we're making people significantly worse off. We're, we're contributing to changes in rainfall patterns, for example, that will affect millions of people in Africa who depend on rainfall to grow their crops. And if that rainfall pattern changes and they can't grow crops anymore where they're living, they're going to become refugees. Um, that's a terrible thing to do to someone, to force them to become a refugee. And uh, we're causing sea levels to rise. Um, that's also going to cause problems for people on low-lying coastal areas, for example, the, the delta regions of Bangladesh, which are very fertile land, home to about 30 million people, only a metre or so above sea level, uh, if we cause them to become refugees. Again, it's a, it's a terrible thing to do. So I don't think we can be living ethically unless we're trying to change this, either through our personal uh, emission of greenhouse gases, but also as a politically active citizen. I think we ought to be telling our political representatives that we think climate change is serious uh, and that we think the United States ought to be reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, back to an individual level on the same subject. Let's talk about comfort. Um, we have air conditioning. If you like, you know, it comfortable, maybe you live in Las Vegas, you've set that air conditioning to 70, 71 degrees. Um you know, it's not going to hurt you to sweat a little bit and have it at 80. I mean, that's not life-threatening. And the same would go come winter. You you know, you live where I do in Spokane. Where the, we set a record this year for snow. We, we have more snow than any city in, in the country with a population of 100,000 or more. And we had cold. Uh, but, you know, the thermostat's at 72 to keep my wife nice and happy and comfortable. Is that, I mean, 
what about the comfort zone? Should we be aware of that? Should we be adjusting our thermostat so that we put a sweater on or we take a, a garment off in the summer? Yes, we should. Um, and, you know, I came to the United States from, from Australia, and uh, I immediately noticed that uh, in winter Americans were not wearing sweaters. In Australia we don't do as much central heating uh, as Americans do, and it's just normal that uh, if you're sitting, you know, if you're inside in, in, in winter, our winters are not nearly as cold as yours, certainly not like cocaine, but um, still, they're, they're cold enough uh, that you need to put a sweater on or else turn up the heating. Um, but we will always put on a sweater, and uh, uh, that will just be normal. You'll just assume that if you're going to be inside, you'll, you'll want to wear um, a sweater to keep yourself warm, and you may need a bit of heating as well. But, uh, yeah, keep the, um, keep the thermostat down in, in winter, um, uh, keep, keep it down in, down in summer, and, um, uh, sorry, keep it up in summer and keep it down in winter, and uh, uh, you can save on your energy bill as well as, of course, reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. All right, let's move to another hot subject. Um, what's going on in the area of synthetic biology today seems, in personal genomics, uh, seems to suggest that, you know, we're going to have uh, a form of clonal capacity. We're going to grow some organs. We're going to engineer some DNA. We're going to uh, engineer our children. Uh, we're going to have the availability to change our looks and, and a whole lot more. Uh, what are some of the ethical considerations that we should be evaluating here? Uh, it's a whole new frontier that is, that is opening up uh, in this area, and there will be many different questions that we will have to discuss over uh, the next few decades. Uh, I think the most interesting one probably is going to be genetic selection of our children uh, because... You know, some of that uh, technology is getting is getting reasonably close, uh, but we can identify genes that will lead to certain characteristics that are desirable. And uh, once we can do that, then people will want their children to have those characteristics. There'd be various ways in which we could do it. The simplest one at the moment would be to use in vitro fertilization to produce multiple embryos. Let's say, you know, my wife and I, uh, we're having children. We're, we're past that age now, but uh, at the stage when we were having children, we could have uh, used in vitro fertilization to produce perhaps uh, as many as a dozen embryos. Then uh, we could genetically type each of these embryos. We could get advice on which ones, let's just take this as one possible example, which ones would have the, the best chance of uh, really doing well academically, getting into elite colleges, uh, and then we could have selected those ones. Uh, that would have cost something um, to do all that, of course. But when you consider how much families already are prepared to pay to send their children to elite colleges if they don't qualify for financial aid, uh, to send them to private uh, uh, secondary schools as well. Um, so I think there's no doubt that families will be prepared to pay for this if they can afford it. Uh, and the result will be that the advantages that wealthy families already have in our community through better education, better schools, uh, will now become solidified in the genes of their children. Uh, and that's going to be a pretty dramatic change. And I think we're going to have to ask, do we really want to have that kind of society in which uh, wealth turns into a genetic advantage as well as um, simply A lot of scary possibilities in the future. We've only got a couple of minutes, and there's a story that you tell that I think is important about giving to a charity that uh, is designed to produce seeing-eye dogs. I want us to be wise about how we donate our money. I know you do. Please share that with us, will you? I'm sorry, I just missed the word. Which charity were you talking about? Yeah, the, the seeing eye dog. I could contribute oh, the seeing to eye a dog. charity. Oh, right. Yes, yes, okay. Got me. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, this is an interesting question because anybody thinks that uh, giving to a charity that trains seeing eye dogs uh, is a good thing to do, and of course, other things being equal, it is a good thing to do. Being able to provide 
and you have to train the person to use the dog, and that requires skilled people who, of course, have to be paid. So it's going to cost you roughly $40,000 to train one seeing-eye dog for one blind person. And then, therefore, you have to ask, what else could I do with that $40,000? Now, if you were to give it to an organization that is working to help people in poorer countries to see or to avoid going blind, you could prevent people going blind or you could restore sight in people who are blind because they have a cataract but can't afford to get it removed. You could do that for, uh, let's say, uh, around $100. That's a fairly conservative estimate. Some people think even less. But uh, if you compare restoring someone's sight for $100 and giving someone a, a seeing-eye dog for $40,000, well, that's pretty easy, I think, to say that it's better to restore someone's sight. And if for the same amount of money you could restore sight for 400 people, that's much better still. So that's Amen. an example of the way in which people will, I think, rather unthinkingly give to what is a good cause because it appeals to them. But they could be doing much All more. All right. Uh, I'm sorry, Professor Singer, I don't want to cut you off, but we are just out of time. Again, the book, The Ethics, Ethics in the Real World by Professor Peter Singer. I cannot recommend it high enough. Thank you, Professor, for your willingness to share with us. And for all of you out there, thank you for joining us. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.